Good morning to you as we begin this morning. Happy New Year. Whatever that may mean. Is Howard Wiley here this morning? I'm not seeing him, and he's to read scripture this morning, so looks like I might be doing it here. Unless one of you other folks would thank you first, you and my reading, that would be great here. Hey, 2021. You know, at the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke says, I compiled this data here from eyewitnesses and arranged an orderly account of Jesus' life. And he writes to a guy named Theophilus. And then, of course, that's what the book of Luke is about. Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 1, Luke says, That former treatise I made of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Implying that the book of Acts, Acts 1 through 28, is everything that Jesus continued to do. Jesus continued in Acts. This is 2021 now. 2020. Quite a year. 2021. Who knows if anything will be any different. One thing we do know that will be the same is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And every year is just another year of the Lord Jesus continuing to do and to teach everything that he has done since the apostles. We can be assured of that. And so as we walk into this year, let's remember that, that this is A.D. 2021. A.D. Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. So 2021 is the year of our Lord. The year of our Master, the year of our King. The, another year where he has not wound up the clock and thrown it away. But he is intricately involved with every single detail that will come to pass in 2021. Everything Jesus continuing to do and to teach. And it's amazing that we get to participate in that. Cooperate uh, in that. Well, uh, in your bulletin is a little bookmark here um, for Bible reading. And I encourage every one of you to grab one of these in your bulletin here because... I thought it would be a wonderful thing if every week our church could together read through the scriptures together. I know some of you have your own individual reading plans. I'm trying to keep this one simple and not overwhelming. But, if, but what an amazing thing if we could all read through the book of Galatians this week. Take one chapter. There are six chapters in the whole book. Take one chapter a day or, hey, if you're ambitious, read them all in a day. There's something about hearing the whole book at once that's pretty powerful here. But read through the book of Galatians, six chapters. Um, and then on the other side of the, of the little uh, bookmark you put in your Bible there are just some basic Bible study principles here that will help you understand the author's intent. Anytime you read Scripture, we're not importing our own um, biases into the Scripture. We're trying to understand what the original author was, in, was intending to get across through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So as you read, um, uh, try to understand what Paul, what was the thrust of what Paul was trying to get across in the book of Galatians to those uh, people there. And then, as you know, our culture is 
is, has, a, has, a, has a big gap between uh, Paul's culture and today's culture. However, there are timeless principles. Though that book was written for a certain context, there are things that overlap with our lives today. And so on, that, um, on, on, the, on the steps there, on the other side of the bookmark, are some ways to discern what are the eternal principles here that uh, we're going to walk through here as believers today. So let me just encourage you to read Galatians next week. I'm going to ask you, what did you learn from Galatians this week? And so if, the, if there's something that strikes you from the book of Galatians, uh, I want you to be able to share that uh, next week as we, uh, as we uh, gather back together. Well, um, before we begin and Birch reads Romans chapter 6, uh, I wonder if there's anything that you would like this morning to give praise and thanks to the Lord for as you look back at 2020 and you begin 2021. Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, and forever. Anybody who'd like to share this morning, break the ice here, be the first testimony of 2021. Josh. Yeah, um, I don't know a lot about, I think Logan might have been the one that organized the uh, group of guys that they'd like to get together and pray. And so we've been a, a, a small group I've been a part of um, with Baby and Ethan. And uh, I guess it's been super encouraging. We read scripture, we pray, we can um, share our words with each other. Difficult with life getting in the way to me, but God's really used this to, uh, to help me be accountable, to uh, keep my heart tender, to um, focus on other people's needs, to help bear burdens. And um, I guess I, it's been awesome. And uh, I would encourage you um, all, if you're not meeting regularly with a, a group of guys or a group of ladies, um, even if you're the one that sets it up, it's it worth it's time well spent. And uh, I think God honors it in our lives. So I'm just super thankful for those two guys, especially, and, uh, and the time that we've had together. Yeah, it's been a powerful time. I can witness to that and attest to that. It's been hard to get our schedules together, but when we do, boy, it's, it's a powerful time. And listen, your Sunday morning gathering here can't accomplish what you can do with a few people. All right? It accomplishes one thing. Kind of like a flyover, uh, an air war, but you need a ground war too in your life. So let me encourage you to get two or three other people, uh, two or three other believers of your own gender, and uh, and go through the scripture. Now you got a little hook to go by. Why don't you read Galatians through together? Or or uh, after you read Galatians, uh, why don't you get together with a couple other people and uh, and discuss it and pray through uh, things and share burdens and, and share testimonies. It's a powerful thing. Uh, men, we need other men. Ladies, you need other ladies uh, to speak into your life and give you the opportunity to speak into their lives. So let me encourage you to do that here in 2021. It's a powerful thing. And uh, I don't think enough of it's going on. And uh, it needs to go on here if you're, if you're going to grow. You will not grow just reading your Bible by yourself. You will grow to a certain extent, but you've got blind spots. i got blind spots. you got blind spots. You need other people speaking into your life. And let me encourage you, that's one application of, uh, of one another here, and it's a really powerful thing. Anybody else a testimony this morning? Dennis? I'm still here by God's grace. Still here by God's grace. That's always a testimony, isn't it? Amen. Good. Some health issues along the way, but God's been faithful and uh, it sustained you. Anyone else? Yes, Rowan. Um, my aunt got medicine to help her walk. 
so she's able to walk again. And then when it came up for approval, by God's grace, the insurance company decided to approve it. Okay, amen. So uh, your, your aunt, who had some degenerative bone disease, um, was not able to walk. She's, what, in her late 40s? Yeah. So, so a lot of life ahead of her and not able to walk. Literally had to crawl around the house, right? And uh, some medicine is helping with that. Very expensive medicine. And uh, it was approved again by insurance. So praise the Lord for those gifts. Anybody else? All right, let's get into the Lord of God. Romans chapter 6, and let me reiterate um, and encourage you with what Jamie just said about reading through uh, the Word as as a body. Um, my father did that in Venezuela and just had, he, he recounts so many blessings that came from that as a body. Uh, it it always encourages me when I'm reading it, reading something that others are reading, because I feel like I'm not just reading it for myself. I'm reading it as as an opportunity to, to speak into others' lives, to actually take what I've read and say, and, and encourage someone else with what God's shown me. This morning, we're reading Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not, that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. 
But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye now are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become the servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this beautiful, salvation plan. This beautiful picture that you've given us, that as we are enslaved and captured by sin, you have caused us to die along with Christ to that sin and be resurrected to a life of righteousness and holiness. Lord, make that life true. Make that life real. In this message, and in this moment, and in this week, that we would live unto you. That we would live as Christ, as one who has victory over sin and death. That every interaction, that that every word every deed would be saturated in the knowledge, in the fact that our sin has been paid for and we are dead to it. That we are alive, that we are truly the sons and daughters of Almighty God. Father, thank you for this body. Thank you for Our pastor, thank you for this word and thank you for our salvation. And we know it's because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice that was made for our sin. And we rejoice in that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you imagine being one of those five house churches and hearing that chapter read? That combination of the strong and the weak in faith. Those who are trying to push the Gentiles toward back to the law, Moses. And those who are looking down on perhaps the Jewish believers in their strange practices. And Romans 6 addressing the core of the issues of where they needed to Psalm 19, verse 13 says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Presumptuous sins. Premeditated sins. In the early hours of Saturday, October 31st of this year, 2020, Navy SEALs rescued an American hostage in northern Nigeria. Operators from SEAL Team 6 rescued Philip Nathan Walton, an American farmer living in Niger. The assault force had no casualties while all but one of the captors were killed. Walton had been kidnapped from his farm in nearby Niger the week before. And the captors demanded a ransom to release the American and move him to Nigeria. And according to the U.S. counterterrorism officials, the men who had taken Walton hostage were not terrorists, but rather criminals. However, there was a real strong possibility that they might attempt to sell Walton to one of the terrorist groups that infest the area in Nigeria. And that looming danger triggered the hostage rescue operation. Now, imagine Walton standing to the SEAL Team 6 rescuers. Wow, you guys are really good at what you do. I'm going to go back to that dangerous area where my farm is by the terrace and try to get taken hostage again and prisoner so that you can swoop in again. It would be ridiculous, right? Let me illustrate it another way. Imagine Israel. 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Rescued from that. Free the people of God, going to the promised land, passing through the Red Sea and seeing God's miracle as Pharaoh's armies pursued them. And then saying, you know what, let's go back to the slavery of Egypt so God can rescue us again. Well, actually, they did do that. Here's a, here's a third try story of the prodigal son. You know the story in Luke 15, the younger son, he twists his father's arm for his share of the property. He goes off and he spends it all, and he comes home, he thinks, in utter disgrace, hoping at the, at the best to be a servant in his father's house. Then to his astonishment, he finds his father running down the road to meet him, greeting him, embracing him, forgiving him of his debt and throwing a huge party in his honor. And he's welcomed back as a son, even though he doesn't deserve it, and even though his older brother grumbles. Now imagine this. A few years later, imagine the thought coming into his, this young man's mind. Life settled down. His older brother is still there. His father's getting older. And he remembers fondly with a happy sigh the day he came running up the road and he came up the road and his father came running to greet him. And he thinks, suppose I do that again. Help myself. Live for myself for a few weeks to survive. Run away for a few weeks and then play the penitent one and come back again. Maybe I'll get another party. It's absurd, isn't it? It's unthinkable. And apparently in Romans chapter 6, it's what some people think. God will forgive me. That's his job, a famous philosopher said about 200 years ago. And a great many people today seem to think that that's okay as well. 
Paul has, as we looked at our recap last week here of Romans, has talked about abounding grace where sin was, where sin was, 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 was abounding. Grace abounded even more. So in some people's minds, Paul says, uh, they say to Paul, uh, to someone who says, that's fine, God loves you. And it's a partial truth, isn't it? God loves you. But God doesn't want to leave you in that state because he loves you too much. And Paul had apparently met this line of argument that if you're preaching grace properly, people will, some people will respond to it with this wrong conception here. We encounter this in chapter 3, verse 8. And I wonder if, it, if, we're, if it's from people who only think of the gospel as just a transaction instead of a relationship. I think of their marriage as a ceremony instead of a relationship. That would be ridiculous, right? Or perhaps I think of the gospel here as just a transaction instead of a relationship with the God of heaven. And if they do so, Romans chapter 6, 1, Paul's telling them that they will miss out on what God, God does in the gospel, not only for your future in heaven, but it affects your present also. The gospel, the good news of the Son of God who came as man, who lived purely, he did only good for others, who died innocently for mankind's evil and rose again to live as the enthroned king. In the hearts of those who will receive him as their saving king. And he will one day come again to judge the world in everlasting punishment. And he will set up his eternal reign and a new creation with his people. This gospel, we saw it in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that was promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, by whom we receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are you also the call of Jesus Christ. This gospel. It was not just active when you received him. It's active now in you since you received him. And so Paul's answer to this extraordinary suggestion in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is God forbid? And here's his reasons for that. What would Paul say to someone who declared that since God accepts us as we are, it's better not to change the way we are since God affirms it with his grace. The first thing Paul wants us to understand is this. What is true of the Son of God is true of us. What is true of the Son of God is true of us. The doctrine he brings out is the doctrine of our union with Christ. That we are forever united in Christ. Paul says in Colossians this way, your life is hidden in Christ. What is true of the Son of God is true of us. I put this, uh, these first uh, several verses up on the screen here in the New King James to see it clearly here and highlighted those connecting words with Jesus. Notice, into Christ Jesus, into his death, 
with Him. Just as Christ, we also, united together in the likeness of His death, in the likeness of His resurrection, with Him, died with Christ, lived with Him, you also, in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's all over, isn't it? It's all over. And when you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, the Spirit placed you in the Son of God. God sees you as He sees the Son of God. In other words, at salvation you can never think of yourself in your original mode before Christ again. When you became a Christian, you died and rose again with the Messiah. And here is one of Paul's core beliefs. You see this all over Scripture. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Messiah is the representative. And what is true of him is true of believers, of you and I. And so he speaks of people coming into the Messiah, or being into the Messiah, in Christ, or things happening to them with the Messiah. So what is true of the Son of God is true of us. And if that is true, then point number two is true as well. What is true of, it, uh, what is true of Christ in us is true once and for all. Your salvation is eternal. It is secure. There is definitive language here. It is definitive. There is a past tense. It can never be changed. That status can be taken away here. Notice verse 10. For in that he died, the past tense here, he died to sin once. The idea is once and for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. Paul's saying, and you're united in that as well. Look at verse 11. Likewise, reckon, count yourselves also, you also yourselves, to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ the Lord. There's a definitive act here. It's done, it's accomplished. And then verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. That is not a command, that's a promise. Why? For you are not under the law, but under grace. The Greek tense there in the condition here is that since this is true, sin can't rule you in Christ. Yeah, you're going to fight it. Yeah, there's going to be temptations. You're going to give in sometimes. But in Christ, it does not have the final say. Isn't that powerful? Sin does not have the final say. Shall not have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. So when we uh, 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 went under the waters of baptism, what we did there was express in a symbolic way these truths. You know when you went under the water and you witnessed the baptism? Libby Bird just got baptized right before he went on vacation on a very, well, it was a warm day in November, but it was cold water for November and actually warm water for November, but cold for those going in it. Jason and I and, uh, and Libby, and it was, it was a little shocking. But when you witnessed that baptism, do you know you witnessed the drowning? You watched the symbolic presentation of someone who drowned. Someone whose old life was gone. Declaring to the world, that's the old me. And when you watched that young lady come out of the water, you witnessed the resurrection 
When we submit to Christ, we die with Him aside, we're raised with Him into a new life. There's a change of status. We are no longer located. Our location has changed. We are not no longer located in sin. Grace has met us there. But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace superabounded, Paul says. Grace met us there. Not to say, not to tell us that, you know what, you're all right. <laughs> That's why it needed to be grace, right? But in order to rescue you, you're ready to get some gardening done, or you're ready to uh, to change your landscaping, and you or you want to plant some fruit trees, and you, 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 you plant a tree or shrub in a particular soil. Where you planted that tree or shrub, that's where that tree or shrub's going to grow. You're not going to look out your window one day and see that tree or shrub on the other side of your yard. And what Paul's saying in this passage here is that you are planted in the death of Jesus. In order that you may now live as a human being who has been made new, walking in newness of life, planted also in his resurrection life. This is definitive. And because of this, you now then, and here's your sanctification, because of this definitive declaration of God by you in Christ, about you in Christ, united in his death and resurrection. Now here's the sanctification part. Growing into the implications of the gospel here is that you live in accordance with this change of status. The gospel gave you a change of status and you live in accordance with it. And now you are operating by faith, believing God, obeying God, bringing your life in line with the person who God says you are in Christ. That's sanctification. How many of you remember the day after you got married, the next morning you probably, well, I shouldn't say probably because I can't speak for everybody's experience, but you wondered if anything was really different. And there's a person next to you, right? Or you have pledged your life to covenant faithfulness. You get married. You might not have felt very different the next morning, but there's a very obvious change that has occurred in your status. And now the rest of your life as a married person is growing into that status. What you declared at your oath there, at your covenant, to love that person, to serve them. Friends, this is what it is. Think about when you were baptized. Oh no, it didn't save you. But it expressed to the world what God had done to save you. In your reception of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what you can't do? You can't get unbaptized again. You can't do that. You can't go back to Egypt. You think about now who you are, and you set off for the promised land in Christ. Third point that we see in Romans chapter 6 is you remind yourself of the victory. Remind yourself of the victory. Look at verse 11. Right after he has said, If we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion. Royal control. Kingly control over you. 
Or in that he died, Christ, he died to sin once. But in that he lives, he lives to God. Death never had, uh, uh, sin and death didn't have dominion over Christ. Because he rose from the dead. He was perfect. Paul says, you're united in him. The same thing is true of you. It does not have dominion over you. So Paul says in verse 11, Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, and alive to God through Jesus Christ, Jesus, the anointed Messiah, our Lord. Remind yourself of the victory. You and I stand on the resurrection ground. We're not in Adam anymore. We are in the Messiah, the one who died and is now alive forevermore. And Paul says we need to reckon this. It's the idea of calculating this. Now, for those of you who are good at math and you like to keep figures, this is a word here, reckon, that's used in bookkeeping and calculating accounts and working out profit and loss figures here. Now, as you're working your books, and you're, or let's just put it in right now context, you start to work on your taxes. When you do a calculation, you get an answer which, in a sense, you didn't know before, didn't exist before in one sense. But in another sense, all that you're doing when you're adding up the figures is to make you aware of what, in fact, was true all along. It doesn't create a new reality. It shows you what is already true. And then when you add up the money, you don't... Let's, Say you have your own business, and at the end of the day, you're adding up the till. You didn't know how much your day's earnings were worth, but you add it up. And when you add it up, it doesn't make the day's earnings a penny larger or smaller than they already are. It tells you what it is, reveals what it is. And Paul is telling us in verse 11, reckon, calculate, you also yourselves to be dead indeed in the sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's telling us to do is do the sums. Add them up. Work out the calculation. He's not saying, I want you to get enough courage here and take a leap of faith and imagine that you're sinless. That's not what he's doing here. There's something different here. What he's saying is this. Don't shut your eyes and try to believe in impossible, but what you need to do is open your eyes to the reality of Jesus and his representative death and resurrection. The reality of your own standing as a, as a uh, immersed, believing a member of Jesus' people, those who are in Messiah. That's what verse 11 is saying. Add it up. See the reality here. Now, how does this work? Well, imagine that you're renting a house for me, and I am a bully. I'm always demanding extra payments. You feel helpless about this. I come into your house without asking. I threaten you with legal action or violence if you don't give in or meet my demands. And you start to get very used to what I'm doing. And you start to uh, 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 be fearful. And there seems to be no way out. You're stuck in this. But then to your relief, a place opens up that you had no idea existed. And you're able to find somewhere else to live. And someone else pays off your remaining rent. And you can leave. And you move out. And you settle in the new place. And then one day, to your horror, you hear a knock at the door. And your old landlord shows up at the door and tries to barge into the house. And I'm angry. And I'm demanding more money. And I'm threatening to take you to court. 
And your mind wants to go back to your old pattern, your old habit. Pay him what he demands, just to get him to leave you alone. Okay? Well, what do you know? What do you have to calculate? What's the sum you have to add up? You know you are not his tenant anymore. You are not under his thumb. You've seen the paperwork. The bill has been paid. Nothing more is owed. And you might be shaking a little bit. But that reckoning, that calculating, enables you to get up and tell him to leave by the authority of one greater than him. He has no claim over you. Depending on how unpleasant I am, as an evil landlord, you may may or may not have to call the police, but Paul's appeal is, is like that. Remind yourself of the victory, the true authority. What he says, remember who you really are. Don't give in to the voices and temptations that tell you that you are still in Adam. You are not in Christ. That you have to behave just like you always have. That because you grew up in this kind of a home, this is how you have to be. That because you didn't have a father or you had a certain kind of mother or didn't have those things, that this is how life has to be. The gospel says, no. Those things can have influence on your life. And we want to be sensitive to those things and other influences. But the gospel says you are not bound to them. The gospel gives you power by the Spirit to form Christ in you. Resisting temptation isn't a matter of pretending you you wouldn't find it easier to give in. No. Because you're in Christ doesn't mean that temptation means, oh, this is going to be a cinch now. No, it's going to be a fight. Paul said it's a fight. We'll see that in the next chapter, right? But it's a matter of learning to think properly, calculate properly, believe properly, and then to act on what you know to be true. So I ask you this morning, what do you know to be true of you in Christ as you face your particular temptation? Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's an uncontrolled lust or desire. Maybe it's something that generally is good, like food. Maybe it's money. Whatever it is, what are you going to have to calculate in your mind? The answer to that is the old me is dead. Christ has no dominion over me. I do not have to say yes to sin. I never do. I can always say yes to God because I'm resurrected and walking in newness of life. And then the fourth and final point is this. Keep presenting your life in loyalty to your master of grace. Roman Empire, 40% Of all that lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. That means two of every five of you would have been slaves in the Roman Empire. They would have understood the language here of dominion, of being under a master. Verse 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants, the word is slaves, obey. The slaves you are to whom you obey. Whether it's sin to death or obedience to righteousness. In other words, your master is the one you obey. 
Bob Dylan say, said, you've got to serve, everybody's going to serve somebody. Who you serve is who you believe rules you, runs you, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Who are you believing? What are you going to believe? But God be thanked, verse 17, that you were the ser- that you were the servants of sin, the slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you become the slaves of righteousness. He's saying, I'm speaking this here with this analogy here for your human understanding. And verse 19. For as you have yielded your members, servants, your bodies, your bodily members, slaves, to uncleanness and to iniquity and iniquity, before, even so now, because you have a transfer of masters, a transfer of kings, yield your members, servants, to righteousness, to holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. When you were a slave to sin, there wasn't righteousness that was domineering your life. What fruit then had you in those things whereof you're now ashamed? But the end of those things is death. That's where it led to. But now, being made free from sin and become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Roman Empire days, if you were a slave, there were opportunities to earn wages. It was different from what we think of slavery in the Civil War. Paul says the wages of sin, being a slave to sin, is death. But the gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to notice here that there is a responsibility now. Because of this definitive statement in the Gospel, you are dead with Christ and raised with Christ. God doesn't just say, all right, now you're on your own. He says, now cooperate with the power. By faith, here's what needs to happen. Do not let sin reign. Sin still has a power, doesn't it? It still has a power. And he says, you have a responsibility now to take this truth and have it applied to your life. Don't let it reign. Count yourself. Calculate. Don't present your members or bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Present them to God as being alive from the dead. Whoever you present yourself as a slave, uh, to obey, you're a slave of that. You're, you're a servant of that here. And since you're in Christ, now you're a slave of righteousness. And if it sounds like a nasty thing to be a slave of righteousness, you forget that righteousness is for your good. And it leads to life. It gives you abundance of life. So Paul says there's a responsibility. Present. Present. Let me explain it this way, an illustration I heard. Let's go to the Middle Ages. Imagine a castle, a battlefield, because that's what Paul's describing here. There's a war going on. There's a battlefield going on. Verses 12 through 14 kind of help put that picture together, and then it... Um, then it uh, expands on our responsibility of presenting and, and reckoning and uh, not letting sin reign here because of our correct thinking here. But in verses 12 through 14, particularly, there's a, there's a conflict, there's a battleground in the life of the typical believer. And what you'll notice is that there is a throne. You see the words Paul uses? Reign, dominion. He says in verse 12, don't let sin reign. There's a reign that's 
becoming contested in this passage. There's a throne. And by the way, the word uh, reign is, 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 is simply the verb form of the word for king. To king, right? But in this reign, because Jesus Christ is now on the throne of your life, throne of your heart, right? When you receive Christ, Jesus is the one who is the king of your life. There's a challenger to this throne, isn't there? There's a revolutionary. There's a rebel who wants to take over this kingdom. And what is this rebel in the chapter? Well, that rebel is sin. Don't let sin reign, Paul says. And what is sin trying to do? Personifying sin. Evil one. He's in revolt. He's mutiny. He's trying to lead a coup and gain the throne. And what are you called to do? Don't let sin reign. You're called to resist. And so there's this castle that's under attack by the challenger. You know what the castle is? What's the castle? Specifically your body. Your body. Why? Because your head controls your body, right? Your mind controls your body. Your body is going to be how these things flush out, right? There's a body. Don't let sin reign in your what? Mortal body, okay? Now, here's another thing you need to see in this illustration. In this castle, there's servants. There are servants. These servants have the potential to become deceptive or secret agents of the rebel leader. And because they're on the inside, they can use their inside servant role to, to, to capture parts of the castle. You know what these servants are called in Romans 6? They're called your desires. Your desires. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its what? Desires. It's lusts. Sin wants to capture your desires. It wants to domineer them. It wants you to think according to self-preservation, according to self-exaltation, according to me, 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 me. That's what sin, the intruder, wants to do. It wants to take those desires and have them channeled wrongly here. Some of these desires could be good, but sin wants to take them and pervert them. And then we're also told here that little by little, surrender is possible. What he says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should, what? Obey it in the lust, the evil desires thereof. Obey. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, so you obey its desires. And so here's the thing. You have these, this, this leader, this rebellious leader, leading a revolt against the castle. And he wants to take some of the desires, some of your desires captive. Sends them in behind the castle walls. And he gives them this, this lie of immunity and reward. If your desires listen to him as the master of sin. If you obey that desire, you know what you just did? You're giving up the castle. Surrendering the castle, practically speaking. But, here's the thing. The weapons are the parts of your body. Your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your hand, your feet. You name it. Verse 13 says this. Neither yield you your members, your bodily members, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, 
but yield yourselves to God and those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Instruments. You know what the word is in the Greek? Apollo. If you've ever studied Greek history, you know that the Greeks had elite training, uh, elite trained fighting units called hoplites. That's the word that's used here. Weapons. Don't surrender the members of your body to sin. Who's this? Who's sin? He's the rebel contender for the throne. Why? Because he want to make he wants to make them weapons of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. So the true true king is God. Sins the rebel. He wants he wants to see insurrection against God. And what Paul says is surrender to the Lord. Stay loyal. He's the true king. Stay loyal with all your weapons, all your servants, all your desires, all your bodily parts and members. Why is this true? Because there is something that has been stamped into eternity, and it's this. The authority of the kingdom is grace. The constitution of this kingdom is grace. Look in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. We are not under the law, but under grace. That's what Paul's describing here, this conflict here, this castle of your body. But what does this mean by implication? First of all, obviously, God's our saving king, the Son of God. God in Christ has come saved from sin. Live the righteousness. Because of that, because we have been put into Christ, our castle, in the service of our desires, and our weapons, our instruments here, belong to Him. And the call here is for us to remember, God, you're my redeeming King. By your grace, I'm going to be loyal to you, not to the insurrection. He's made us alive. He's made us his dwelling place for Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying, present. He's saying, keep trusting. Keep depending on him. Keep submitting to him. Stay loyal. Resist the contenders. Your life belongs to God. Even bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. Also tells us here in this, these verses here that Sin's a power. Sin is a power. Don't let it rain in your mortal body. It's threatening. Threatens to rain. It's a power that wants to take us captive through desires and bring actions about. And as it do that, it wants to get a hold of the control room there of your desires, right? And those desires can be captured. Or, they can be calculated to be under Christ. Be under Christ. The righteous acts. Let me give you one last illustration. Remember Samson? Remember the end of his life? The thing that led to the end of his life? Delilah? Married a Philistine wife? 
steps in to care for Delilah, I guess would have been an honorable thing while she was a faithful wife, but the whole time she was under the Philistine control, wasn't she? What were they using Delilah for? She was like a secret agent of the enemy, right? And when Samson stopped resisting, what happened to Samson? When he surrendered to her as a servant of the enemy, they got him. They got him. The great thing of the story is that God's abounding grace was still there. And the end of the story is the Spirit of God came again on the Samson. Took down more Philistines that day in his death than he had his whole life. But I think the principle is here. We present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. There is a powerful thing. We reflect the truth and values of God that have been declared to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a glorifying of God that happens. There's also a warning here in these verses, isn't there? Sin captures, makes us join in as deceptive purposes. We're acting like those committing treason, aren't we? And that's why Paul says, set your eyes on the prize. Look at verses 20 to 23. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He says, remember, remember, remember. And now he says, verse 22, what now? Being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. This verse we're so familiar with here, set in this context, for the wages, payment for sin, Leads to death. It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the motivation. I don't have time to flush out a theology of rewards from the New Testament. But the Bible promises believers that there are eternal rewards. Beyond even just getting to heaven, there is eternal rewards in heaven. It's an amazing thing. It's a motivational thing. It's supposed to increase our desires to live for Jesus, to be found faithful. And through my study of these rewards, I see them as an increased capacity to enjoy God in heaven. Increased capacity to enjoy God in heaven. Oh, in heaven, every one of our cups will be full with the fullness of God. But there is a sense where those rewards for life, this life here, gives us bigger cups to enjoy God. And what if you thought of your sin and what if you thought of those temptations that the evil one wants to take captive again, reclaim, go back to Egypt again? Go back to being taken captive. Go back to the life of the prodigal. 
What if you saw those as opportunities to increase your capacity to enjoy God, both here in this life and in eternity? And the contributions that God allows you to make, the rewards in heaven, present your bodies as slaves to the God of grace. What? Shall we sin that grace would abound? God forbid. 